welcome to episode 431 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show with a song. This is the band Surf Manchu. The song is Drywall. It's from their album, The Beast from the East. This is actually an EP that you can pick up over at surfmanchu.bandcamp.com. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes so you can go check it out when you're done listening to this episode, which is going to be a little while because there's a lot to get to in this episode of the podcast. I'm thrilled, man. I'm stoked. I've got so much here for you, and it's not just me. Of course, we've got Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story, and it's another good one. Kenny's got his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and uh, did something a little different this time around, and I kind of liked it. And Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles. So we've got the segments, and we've got the main movie that we're talking about. We're talking about a movie called Man Without a Body with author Micah Harris. Micah's somebody that I met for the first time in person a couple years back at Monster Bash, but he's been on the show repeatedly since then, and well, I think even before then. Micah's a great guy, he's a great author, and I was so happy that we finally, finally made time to talk about this film, because it's just crazy. We're going to get to all of that here in a second. First, I want to go over an email that was sent in from listener Mike D. out of Indiana. Mike says, just figured I'd drop a note about an upcoming event at the Skyline Drive-In Theater in Shelbyville, Indiana, just in case Scott Morris hasn't told you. August 23rd and 24th, from dusk till dawn, $12 per day or $20 for the full weekend with free camping. On Friday, August 23rd, they're going to be showing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the 1931 film, a movie to be announced, Reanimator from 1985, 4D Man from 1959, and Alligator People also from 1959. And then on Saturday, the 24th of August, they're showing Frankenstein from 1931, another film to be announced, 1986's The Fly, 1966's Island of Terror, and 1941's Man Made monster. Anyway, I'll have to go and see at least Island of Terror. My sister tells me that one of the to-be-announced films may be a Hammer film. It may be Taste the Blood of Dracula. Love your show. Mike, thanks for writing in, and thanks for giving us a heads-up about this. This is actually something that I'd love for anybody and everybody to do. If there's anything happening in your neck of the woods, Monster Kid related, something that you think Monster Kids might enjoy doing, it never hurts to call in or send me an email because there may be more Monster Kid radio listeners and monster kids in your area that don't know what's going on, or you might be able to even form a little kind of sort of meetup thing. If you are going to be at the Skyline Drive-In Theater that weekend, I'd also love to ask you to give us a call. Let us know how the event went. You can call our voicemail line. Our phone number is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Although, you know what might be kind of fun is if you were to call from the drive-in itself. So we can get some of that cool drive-in background noise. Anyway, if you're going to be there, I'd love to hear how it went. And maybe look up Mike and you know meet up and, you know, do the Monster Kid thing together. This sounds like a blast. I wish I could be there. And like I told Mike... I shouldn't be jealous because I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm incredibly lucky that there are so many movies playing all the time around here. Heck, the Hollywood Theater is going to be doing a Godzilla-thon over the course of a couple of days for Godzilla movies in 35mm. That's amazing. So, yeah, I shouldn't be jealous, but some of those movies to see at the drive-in? Wow. I mean, 
Island of Terror at a drive-in, Frankenstein, Man-Made Monster, these all sound awesome in the drive-in setting. So I hope you have a blast. Thanks for sending that in, man. Okay, let's go ahead and get on to the show. We've got all those juicy segments I talked about and then the conversation with Micah about Man Without a Body. Let's get to all of that right after this. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned, an armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast, the beast, the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street, Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know where the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss. Supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me. She hated me. Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Mr. Olson, 
Have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Professor Friends, it's a show. Professor Friends, a show. Professor Friends, it's a show. Professor Friends, a show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Curse of Harkley Heath. It's from The Vault of Horror, number 13, the June-July issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Wally Wood and Harry Harrison. So sit back and relax while I tell this moody story. The dilapidated old house called Harkley Heath loomed over an English moor. The three remaining Harkley cousins sat inside, reading from the 1820s diary 
of Clayton Harkley, the original head of the family. Clayton was mortally wounded by his brother, who would inherit the family fortune. However, he laid a curse on the family, dooming it to extinction. The three cousins, vampish Sybil, thuggish Charles, and nervous Edgar, were discussing their recent murder of their uncle. They have inherited the money now. A knock came to the door. It was their uncle's attorney bearing his will. All his money would go to cousin Sybil. After the lawyer left, the two men looked greedily at her as she went off to bed. She knew they would surely want to kill her. She was right, they did. They got a syringe full of morphine and went up to her room to do the deed. She was ready for them, though. She had a gun in her nightstand, and she hid behind the door. When Charles came in with the drug, she brandished the gun at him. Edgar, though, pushed the door into her, and the shot went harmlessly into the ceiling. They wrestled her to the ground and administered the deadly dose. After she went limp, they carried her to the deep basement vault where they would keep her until they could bring her out to the moors. The two men realized that the other would surely want to kill the other. Edgar was afraid of Sybil's spirit haunting them. When they sat in front of the fire, Edgar saw Sybil in the flames. With every creak and bang the old pile made, Edgar was certain she would return to take revenge. Charles dismissed these thoughts as foolishness. Instead, Charles said, you should be afraid of me. He chased his nervous cousin into a dead-end room. As he closed in for the kill, a chandelier fell from the ceiling, killing Charles. Edgar was sure the accident was the work of Sybil's ghost. He ran down the hall to escape the house, but as he opened a door, Sybil appeared in front of him. You're dead, Edgar cried. No, she said. I was taking morphine due to my illness. Your dose just knocked me out briefly. But now I am going to kill you. Edgar threw a lamp at her, which caught the room on fire. The fire spread to the rest of the house, trapping the two remaining Harkley cousins inside, where they were killed, fulfilling the curse of Harkley Heath at last. The end. I hope you enjoyed this vicious story. There is nothing quite like a spooky English house on the moors. Gosh, I love it. The cousins have what could graciously be described as a low moral character and got what they deserved in true EC fashion. I love how the cousins turned on each other each in turn. They were doomed from the start. The art on this perfectly gave the spooky mood you'd expect. The house had lonely libraries, dramatic staircases, archways with winding staircases down to dungeon-like basements. The perfect home for any monster kid. The three cousins were drawn very distinctly. Charles was a goon in a handsome suit. Edgar was mousy and jittery. Sybil was a vicious-looking redhead. It's stories like this that made E.C. the household name it came to be. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. 
I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter, at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness, where nightmares become reality. Dead lives. Dead lives in Tales from the Crypt. The Vault of Horror is about to open. You will learn its terrifying secrets if you dare. Tales from the Crypt from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested some material may be unsuitable for pre-teenagers. If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team? Or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast X meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as movie X meets movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla meets Old Yeller, and Robocop meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts, or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Seaweed, fish, and turtle's eggs. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. You never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. I'll kill you. But Tango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Maybe. Oh, help me. Help me. 
please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko! vegetable monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matungo? You'll find out when you see Matungo! Monster Kid Radio presents Dr. Tong's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Dateline, the internet. I've been remiss in avoiding this for some time now. Well, seeing as that the movie was released into theaters three months ago, Godzilla King of the Monsters roared onto screens in the US in late May, and with it came a plethora of merchandise. It looks like the majority of the figural monsters from the new movie are made by Jack Specific, and good old Godzi comes in a range of sizes to suit the most discernible kaiju fan. Now, I have been remiss in updating you on all of this because, A, you have probably already heard about it. And B, it's new versions of the classic Toho monsters. I'm really not amused. If you're into the more cute, super deformed kaiju fare, Kid Robot has released their Godzilla King of the Monsters blind box set. Lots of your old favorites are here, including classics like Mechagodzilla, Mothra, and a really weird looking Rodan, as well as six different versions of the big guy. And speaking of classic Godzilla, the Criterion Collection has announced for its 1,000th release, say that five times fast, again, they will be presenting a 15-disc Blu-ray classic Godzilla set late in October of this year. Just brings tears to my eyes thinking about it. Starting with the classic 1954 radiation-soaked celluloid masterpiece Godzilla, and following that up with 14 of the sequels from the Showa era. Also included in the set is a deluxe hardcover book and plenty of new extras on every disc. And just a helpful reminder, set your pre-order up with Amazon through the MKR link and help Derek out with the production of this show. It would be much appreciated. This Justin! And for those of you out there that have not yet seen the new film, it is set to be released streaming on Amazon in mid-August and a Blu-ray release to follow later in the month. Artist Spotlight! I really love my monsters, and I prefer them big, ugly, scary, and dripping with ooze when appropriate. This next artist I'm going to introduce you to prefers the cuter side of the spectrum. Jellyco Art and Toys is a two-person monster-making machine out of Columbia, South Carolina. Kelly and Spencer Shaw make some of the cutest monster stuff I have ever seen, and that's not a bad thing either. As I stated, I like my monsters big, ugly, and scary but Jellico makes them so sickly sweet and cool that there's something, well, disturbing about them. The feeling is that they will lure you in, and when you're feeling safe and you're not in danger, wham! That cute little monster is having you for lunch. Specializing in that big-eyed look of an updated Keen painting, subject matters breached by Jellico, 
are The Addams Family, Munsters, Aliens, of course Dracula and Frankenstein and other classic Universal-inspired creatures, as well as Freddy, Jason, and all that slasher gang. But it's the cute, twisted ones that get me every time. How about a knife-wielding bear named Stabbington? Or a big-eyed, pink-headed, smiling Baphomet to steal your soul? Art prints, enamel pins, original art, and more are all available over on the website jellyco.com or over on Instagram under the same name and get ready to get your twisted monster obsession on. Vintage Monster Toys! This time around, I'm going to take a trip back into the late 70s for your vintage monster toy flashback. But I'm sure some of you remember these little fellows maybe even earlier than that. Now when I say the word eraser to you, what do you think of? And I'm not talking about that crappy movie in the 90s with Arnold in it. What pops up is probably a pink odd-shaped rectangle that barely removed any of the pencil marks and left a ton of rubber shards all over your paperwork and your desktop, right? (laughs) Wrong. The ones I'm talking about were manufactured by Diener Industries out of Chatsworth, California. Founded way back in 1957, they specialize in making figural rubber erasers. You know the kind I'm talking about. We've all had them at one time or another during our childhood. Cute little rubber figurals of some of your favorite cartoon characters. Hanna-Barbera, Disney, Warner Brothers, generic cars, circus animals, weird space robots and ships. They were everywhere. I seem to remember them at my dentist's office. You know, the prize you got for putting up with getting a cavity filled? That was really a fair trade, right? Not, Not really. As a matter of fact, 25% of all of Diener's business was to dentist's office, all the way up until 1983. I'm sure you ran into them elsewhere, though. Student stores, at-a-school carnival, grab bags, party favors, and especially at family restaurants that had that pirate treasure chest. You know, the kind you got to pick a really crappy prize out of, a really crappy wooden chest, for being a good little boy and girl after you got done eating. In the late 70s, Diener made a series of eight different monsters they called space creatures. Released to accompany the already popular space robot and spaceship sets, go figure, it was the late 70s, thanks a lot Star Wars, they were originally released as erasers, but then history was made. McDonald's approached Diener to include them as prizes in one of their very early Happy Meals. Rumor has it that they were made of a harder plastic than the eraser rubber, which would explain the couple of different durometers of the figures I have run into. But when I perfect my time machine that I'm working on, this is one of the things I plan on going back and investigating more thoroughly. Don't, don't, don't strap on that dragonfly. Now I mention the space creature figures due to the fact that they should be of special interest to monster kids everywhere, as these little fellas closely resemble some classic cinematic B-movie critters that we all know and love. These are close enough, but some need a little stretch of your imagination in order for you to see. First off, there is the short, bulbous-headed alien, resembling those aliens from Invasion of the Saucermen, one of my personal favorites. Another extraterrestrial has the head of an alien from the Outer Limits episode, The Keeper of the Purple Twilight. This one's not really hard to see. There's a monster with the head of the space creature from I Married a Monster from Outer Space. And then there's a full-on fly monster, which I am sure is a nod to the Hedison's insect head. There's a reptilian space traveler that closely resembles Harryhausen's Emir from 20 million miles to Earth. Another goofy alien that's copped his look from the underwater aliens from Destination Inner Space. There's a wing monster that looks like the cross between the flying creatures from the Lost Continent and Batman's Man-Bat. And lastly, 
the one that needs the most help in stretching your imagination, the Cyclops Ape. To me, it looks like the furry critter from Terror in the Midnight Sun, minus one eye. You might know it better as Invasion of the Animal People, and extra points if you've been able to sit through that one. Aside from being available for sale in countertop dumps, the space creatures were also released on card in two packs with varying card art. I have seen at least four different versions of packaging. That variety were sold at party stores as party favors or cheap grad bag gifts as I had mentioned before. And to make collecting them that much more complicated, each monster came in a bunch of different colors originally, with some popping up in neon colors at a later date. Now if you're interested in collecting these little guys, you're in luck. Most can be found for under 5 bucks each, although they are usually mixed in with a batch of other smaller figures that you're going to have to buy along with them. And once again, a special thanks to Derek here at MKR for the opportunity to run these little segments and to remind you, I am not a monster toy expert. I just know what I like, and I like what I know. I am an excited monster enthusiast. You got any sneak peeks of monster merchandise coming out soon, or feedback on the DTWOMC segments? Drop Derek a line, and he will forward it along to me here at MKR. And if you're interested, you can see what's happening at my toy shop over on Instagram at Dr. Tongues Toys, all one word, as well as on Facebook under Dr. Tongues I Had That Shop. Or head on over to my private account, MonsterMan64, and see some of the cool stuff I pick up for my personal monster collection. Once again, this is Mark Dr. Tongue Peterson saying, Happy monster collecting, everybody. I'm out! Peace! The fantastic duel of the century, the most ferocious battle in history. The flesh and blood King Kong fights his most incredible enemy, a 60-foot robot King Kong forged of super steel. King Kong escapes. All new, all thrilling in Technicolor. King Kong battles missiles, monsters, and a King Kong of steel. King Kong escapes. A Toho Company limited picture, a universal release. Life has many strange secrets. And none is stranger than the curse of the Blood Ghouls. In the dark of night, they leave their tombs to satisfy their need for blood. Because these demons of the undead can exist only by ravishing the living. Normal powers of love, they enslave the unwary. Leaving on them the horrible telltale fang mark of the vampire. Life devouring monsters in human form. They can be anywhere, everywhere. Only by destroying them will a town gone wild with terror and fear be free of the curse of the blood ghouls. Good evening, monster kids. 
This is the Count. I'm here with some friends to tell you about our favorite board and card game podcast. It's Go Forth and Game. Tom and Ryan talk about all things gaming with special emphasis on interviews with game designers and publishers. What do you think about this, my tall, gaunt friend? Go Forth Game. Good. And what about you, my undead comrade? I think Go Forth and Game is the most entertaining podcast about board and card games that I've come across in 4,522 years. So, if you enjoy listening to two monster kids discuss topics like abstract games, the best family games, game schooling, various game mechanics, and of course, monster-themed games, then you should give Go Forth and Game a try. That's GoForthAndGame.com, available on iTunes and Spotify. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie was not featured in Famous Monsters, so I'm going to start a new series called We've Seen That Already or What You Waiting For, Derek? We will go through Famous Monsters issue by issue and pick out articles dedicated to specific movies. And if they were covered in the past on MKR, we will hit some of the highlights and let you know which MKR you can hear about the movie. If they have not been covered, we will again pick a couple of highlights and ask, What you waiting for, Derek? It'll take a while, but we will eventually see every film featured in Famous Monsters. Let's get started. Famous Monsters number 1 features several compilation articles talking about the Famous Monster stars, Scream Queens, and Frankenstein movies, among others. The first film which merited a feature in Famous Monsters was Invasion of the Saucermen. In a photo article, we meet Paul and Jackie Blaisdell, and we see some fantastic behind-the-scenes photos of how they made the alien from Invasion of the Saucermen. Here is what the article had to say. Frankenstein, the doctor, in his last days never had it so good as Paul Blaisdell, MD, Monster Doctor. Except that whereas Frankenstein's monster turned on his creator and destroyed him, the only threat that Blaisdell's monsters constitute to him is to kill him with work. Blaisdell is the busiest monster maker in the movie industry. He's so busy, he's even employs his wife Jackie as his assistant. She's the gal who bakes brain cakes in the kitchen. And when the Blaisdells have assembled their latest monster, it's quite a sight watching Papa Paul drive down Sunset Boulevard with Junior by his side in the front seat. Blaisdell's bases are chauffeured to work in style. They arrive at the studio gates in a Cadillac, no less. Blaisdell's monsters have enriched the lives of millions of monster lovers and thousands of hours of sweat and blood and tears have gone into the creation of his fearsome menagerie of otherworldly life forms. First, there is the visual concept of the monster itself. Blaisdell is a top-notch artist whose covers have been featured on leading science fiction magazines of America as well as abroad in Germany and Sweden. He makes many preliminary sketches in pen and ink and then a variety of paintings showing each monster front view, back, side, full face, etc. After one of his many employers has okayed the artwork, the hard work begins. First, the head or body form is molded out of clay. Then a plaster mold is made of the clay form. 
From the plaster mold comes a rubber mold. Plastic eyes and teeth are added, and like a living statue, the thing is painted. A brilliant red in the case of the giant cucumber creature from Venus, it conquered the world, or sea green and seaweed brown in the case of the she creature. Blaisdell's priceless secrets of monster making are carefully guarded in his Topanga Canyon retreat, where visitors to his laboratory-like workshop must first cross a high aerial suspension bridge over a raging river. He loses more visitors that way. Asked what the single most costly substance of his specialty is in an exclusive interview for Famous Monsters of Filmland, famous monster maker Blaisdell answered without hesitation, Midnight oil. I burn it by the barrel, keeping creatures rolling off the assembly line around the clock. Looking at his stock of shock masks, fangs, talons, tails, horns, etc., it was easy to believe he was telling the truth. So, have we heard about Invasion of the Sashimen on MKR? Or is it a Whatcha Waiting For Derek movie? This is definitely a Whatcha Waiting For Derek movie, featured in the first FM and not on MKR. Do you love the movie? Let Derek know so our iconic bald-headed aliens can get their proper due on Monster Kid Radio. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This is Kenny for MKR. We'll be back with more next week. Adios! Carter. Oh, sure, they're from another planet. What a dilemma for young lovers Steve Terrell and Gloria Castile. You thought I was kidding. Nobody will believe the invasion of the saucer men. All this makes it seem natural for a beer-drinking bull to appoint himself chaperone of Lover's Lane. Hey, for Pete's sake! And a farmer with the longest shotgun you've ever seen plays the villain. What's so funny? Well, I expected to be frightened on my wedding night, but nothing like this. It's our busy night, too. We've been flooded with calls from people who say they've seen flying saucers and little green monsters. wonder how that rumor ever got started. <laughs> it's too fantastic to believe. Just think of it. Only this special unit and the President of the United States will know what happened here tonight. You mean you think we know what's happened? Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. 
Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Blood-chilling science fiction shockers, Island of the Burning Damned, and Godzilla's Revenge. In this quiet setting, a tale of prehistoric horror is about to unfold with a science-battling awakening of long-gone giants. Fighting amongst each other for the conquest of our planet. See the giant spiders spin their web of fear around their enemies. Godzilla's revenge knows no limit. No end. No stopping. See man's last attempt at saving humanity from destruction. And Godzilla's revenge. on the same shock-filled program, Island of the Burning Dam. What is that strange noise and burning white heat that drove people to their death? I have been convinced that this island has become the center of an invasion, the central landing point for beings from another planet. What happens when an unknown power from outer space uses our radar signals as life-saving beacons to bring it to Earth to consume our energy? Island of the Burning Damned, an island desperate for help. head, Nostradamus, a wax museum, grave robbing, thrown into a blender of film noir, and uh, we have the movie that we're talking about this week on the show with, well, a guy who still has his head, 
Micah Harris, how you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Derek, for a very busy guy, I guess you could say. I'm trying to keep my head, and I hope that that will oh. be the first and last bad head joke that you just you can't seem to keep yourself from doing, even though you know they're groaners. But oh, anyway. well, you know it's going to happen. It, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to. We can't get away from it. I mean, we're talking about a movie about. You know what? We'll talk about the movie in a second. The last time I chatted with you was at Monster Bash. It's been about a month and a half since then. How have things been going for you post-Bash? Again, very busy. I'm, I'm working to finish up a um, fantasy uh, novel by the 1st of September, and it turned into something really big, so I'm, I'm really having to cut it back. And I did give a little preview of it at Monster Bash. I uh, had the booklet uh, with a self-contained episode uh, within the story. That kind of had a hammer horror feel to it. And as you know, you were giving those away at your table. I previewed it there and trying to do more promotional things for that, get it finished. It is a Snow Queen derivative novel. It's kind of like, uh, you know, what if Hammer had adapted Hans Christian Andersen? You know, what if Hammer had made Frozen? <laughs> Which is something <laughs> I would have loved, loved to have seen. I'll have to settle for your book. Or would Barbara, Barbara Shelley during her, her Gorgon oh, mode? There you go. You know, there you go. Whatever. Would have been great. Yeah. And it also has a Cthulhu impersonator in it. I think we've left Disney behind by this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working hard to get that out. I have a lot of good artists involved with it in terms of illustration. Uh, Neil Vokes, who did the cover for the booklet, mm -hmm. uh, has contributed some art. Uh, my good friend Gary Woolard uh, has done a map. You know, this is one of those books with a map. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yes. Uh -huh. And uh, I just I have some other really good collaborators in that regard. Right on, man. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. I've just got to finish it. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> a lot of a lot of work. But, yeah, that's pretty much uh, been my life <laughs> since the since since the bash. Listeners, I still have. I think three of the booklets myself. So stay tuned for the end of the episode. I'm going to tell you how you can win a copy from Monster Kid Radio. So stay tuned for that. You can always follow up with Micah at his website at minorprofitpress.com. And we'll talk about that at the end of the show as well. And link in the show notes. You all know how it works at this point. Thank you. So we have a movie that we want to talk about. It's been way too long. How long has it been? It's been two years, dude, since we <laughs> did uh, The Woman Eater, The Companion piece to the man without a body <laughs> all right so the woman eater came out in 56 the man without a body came out in 1957 supposedly co-directed by charles saunders and w lee wilder but if you do the reading and the research really charles saunders's name was kind of added for um some financing purposes. He really didn't have much to do. In fact, some of the actors have said in interviews that he just kind of stood around the set when he bothered to show up. So it's just one of those things where you have to have a British name in order to get some money or, or permission, I guess, or tax breaks or whatever to film in Great Britain. Uh, but yeah, it's W. Lee Wilder's uh, madness that we're watching here. <laughs> yeah, and isn't it amazing that he's Billy Wilder's brother? 
it's nuts. The guy who gave us Sunset Boulevard and Sabrina and some like it hot and W. Lee Wilder gives us Killers from Space, Phantom from Space, Snow Creatures, Man Fish, and the one that's really got my interested, Bluebeard's Ten Honeymoons. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, yeah, and then, and then we were talking about Charles Saunders earlier. Uh-huh. His brother was knighted, apparently, for his work in theater and bringing Agatha Christie to the stage. He was the guy who wow. got the mousetrap going. So I'm looking at these guys, these brothers, and, you know, Charles Saunders is giving us things like the woman eater and the man without a, uh, a body, and his brother is giving us Agatha Christie. Billy Wilder's giving us some of the greats of the Hollywood age. Uh, his brother is giving us, you know, man fish or something. You know, it's like, was there a mix-up at the nursery in the hospital? <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I'm, I'm wondering here. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? You know, Wilder also directed a movie called Fright that was produced or released in 56. I only bring that up because The Man Without a Body was released as part of a double feature with the movie Fright at one point in ah, the U.S. Okay. So that was the connection there. Uh, I did some digging, and I found a copy of the press kit for Man Without a Body. Good night. We're, okay, here we go. Where did you dig that up? There's an incredible website, Zombo's Closet. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And oh, fantastic. He, he posts uh, scans of press kits and lobby cards, and if you're looking for something... You can find really good scans uh, online that he's put up for us. And these press kits, I love them. I love these press kits so much. Now, I know they're written from that kind of ballyhoo, get butts in the seat kind of approach. So you really can't believe all of it. You know, it's all promotional material. But if you read this press kit, (laughs) you're meant to believe that one of the actresses in this film is a woman without a country. That she... In a bold bid to escape from behind the Iron Curtain, where she had been a guerrilla fighter in the cause of freedom, she walked for days without food and drink until she found an unguarded point on the border. After a series of adventures in half the countries on the continent, Nadja, the actress we're talking about here, arrived in London where her magnetism attracted the attention of movie makers. (laughs) I don't know how true that is. I did a little bit of digging on this. And yeah, she did flee. Uh, I think it was the Ukraine. Whether or not she was a freedom fighter and she was on, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting about that too? She she is the uh, lovely Odette, yes, right, yes. of the man without a body, the the sultry temptress, mm-hmm. uh, and you know she went on to do a couple Bond movies. Yeah, yeah. So she's... so the Cold War thing has actually was working out well for, her, right? and I believe she just died this past April. Yeah, she passed away earlier this year in April. Nadia, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce the last name, Regin or Regan. There's a G in there, and I don't know if it's a hard or soft G. But yeah, she uh, did pass earlier this year. But she did some Bond work, uh, did a lot of television. She was on The Saint, Danger Man, a handful of other things like that. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess when the movie starts, you feel like maybe she is the daughter of our lead. <laughs> but not quite. It kind of you, you quickly get... Uh, <laughs> I thought it was funny that one of the guys in the movie says your daughter when obviously, (laughs) I mean, by that point we know, you know, there's something going on between them. Yeah. But yeah, their relationship (laughs) confused me too. I never thought she was 
his daughter, but there is certainly you sure you don't mean granddaughter, but I didn't know. Like, are you his wife or something? Because there's that whole weird scene where she's obviously flirting with the handsomer guy right in front of him across the restaurant. Yeah. And he's sitting there steaming, you know, and, but yeah, I think she was his, his, I mean, she says, if you can trust her, you know, her character's rather devious, you know, she yeah, there, says it was that, my, yeah. my father's business partner. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I picked up somewhere that she's his mistress, which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense in context of the movie. Well, in yes. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the film, sure. Sure, sure. And we're talking about Carl Broussard, played by our <laughs> our mad doctor from The Woman Eater, uh, George yes. Coloris. Back for another turn. That's a mad genius. Well, I mean, mad be, something. Yeah, he's kind of a... a mad oil man. <laughs> yeah, he, it is different. But, you know, I did read where he said that he was very content playing bad guys. Well, he's good at it. Of course, you know, we, we talked about our... Our friend George, a little more when we talked about the woman eater, mm-hmm. um, the fact that he was associated with Orson Welles, that he's uh, in Citizen Kane, the the rich a rich man there again, yeah. who who Charles Foster Kane is given <laughs> to by his mother by Agnes mm-hmm. Moria. That's George Clarkson. He worked with Kubrick and what is it, Murder on the Orient Express? I think he did like a modern dress Shakespearean stage play. You oh know, wow! Back you know like maybe in the thirties or something, and so you know he's got all these high artistic associations, and then he's got the woman eater and the man without a body. <laughs> It was a slow year that year for him or something. Whether Orson Welles is knocking on your door or not. (laughs) (laughs) So the the man without a body, uh, the the story is pretty, it's pretty simple, even though it's got all these disparate elements that kind of come together in in an interesting way, but it's not (laughs) overly difficult. Carbrassard, rich man dying he's got a brain tumor and he wants to figure out a way to to fight this he doesn't want to die obviously you know he, no, 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 you know he was trying to figure something out he goes to his doctor his doctor recommends somebody else over in england dr Merritt, played by robert hutton who i really liked and man if i could have a mustache like that man would be amazing <laughs> dr Merritt is up to some i don't want to say mad science because he seems very open about it and is writing medical journals about it and yeah no big deal. We're just making heads come back from the dead. That's all. And they're hoping to go wide with it by the end. You know, that's that's <laughs> what gets me. It's like, well, my health care plan, cover this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you take insurance? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Broussard gets it in his head, huh? Uh, okay. that, there we go. Yeah. That's, that's your one. I had mine. <laughs> That Dr. Merritt's uh, techniques, his discoveries, his breakthroughs are going to make it possible for him to, I'm not 100% clear. At first, it seems like he wants to have his brain swapped with another brain, but it wouldn't be him. So he's trying to train this new brain to be a replacement for him, but then he's still going to die. Bottom line, he ends up in France and finds Nostradamus' crypt and gets his head. <laughs> yeah, and the whole thing is crazy because when, like you said, when you're listening to it, they actually begin to talk like if your body is strong enough, the host body, it will take over the brain. And you can assert the old personality can assert itself. <laughs> 
And it's like, yeah, it's so wonky. I mean, it, I mean, I wish I could come up with stuff like this as a writer. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, just incredible. Right? But you have that whole conversation. First of all, I was watching this with my nephew, and he cracked up because our doctor – I'm going to call him Dr. Phil because that was his first name in the book. You know, our mad, our, uh-huh. you know, good looking mad scientist there. He's, he's somewhere between Richard Carlson and, and Colin Clive, isn't he? Uh, you know, yeah. in the fifties, yeah. scientists became more respectable and our leading men, as opposed to in the thirties and forties where they're dealing with things they sh- shouldn't. And this guy's kind of straddling the line, you know, between mm-hmm. the two, it seems, yeah. but he's having that conversation and, and my nephew cracked up because he's talking about how household pets of limited intelligence have been given the brains of trained circus animals and apparently have started doing flips and walking on their hind legs or something. And my, my nephew was laughing because he's like, you know, don't all household pets have limited intelligence, you know, by the by the nature of being animals it seems a, a bit re- i mean if i go down to the pet store mm-hmm. you know it's like i'd like to see that uh, that kitten's high school diploma the diploma equivalent <laughs> please uh before i take fluffy home you know it's just like what are you you know do you want a pet that will help your kids with their algebra homework i it's just it's just such a one of uh, many bizarre turns of phrases in this uh, in this movie perhaps that you're going to get it's odd yeah yeah Household pets of limited in intelligence. And I do think that maybe they're smarter than the circus animals because the circus animals got caught, right? They have to work for a living. You know, <laughs> the household pets, gravy trade, man. <laughs> Air-conditioned house. You know, somebody's putting my food out for me. Changing my, you know, my box. Hey, it's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, true. Yeah, but but yeah, you get that notion, and it's something that does follow through, you know, with with this writer. And we got to talk about the writer because this man is one of the unsung heroes of of horror cinema. Early on, we see Broussard, you know, working out, right? Yeah, his physical regime. Although I always see him do his squats. You know, it's his trainers doing all the hard work, but he talks about his <laughs> muscles of steel and, uh, mm-hmm. and all these yeah, things. Buddy. So he, there's this idea that he's got, you know, a physical superiority about him. And, and that follows through with the notion that the body, you know, can, can take over the mind and, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but at the end, that's what they're hoping for, you know. But we'll, sure. we'll get to that. Yeah. So it's just, it's a very, very bizarre notion from a very bizarre film. But, you know, uh, we've done some, you know, f- research and I checked it with, uh, okay, I got to say, my brain trust Tim Durbin. <laughs> oh, no, you did not. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I was hard man. to get around that. But, but, you know, Tim's an encyclopedia, you know, of sure, these things. Sure. Guys. So I felt, you know, good because I was looking at it. And I think this is the first disembodied head movie, living disembodied head movie. You know, we take it for granted, I guess, you know, along with, you know, living in a free country, uh, <laughs> disembodied head movies. But somebody had to be first. And, you know, uh, yes, somebody please do correct me if I'm wrong, but – Checking it with Tim and, and doing my own, you know, a little bit of research. This one created the genre. 
which is actually, if you think about it, uh, an innovation on the zombie film. I could see that. Yeah, I could see it kind of being part of that. Piece of a zombie. And it's alive, the living dead. But this movie created it. The gentleman's name, uh, William Grote, or Grote, G-R-O-T-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his only film credit. Uh, according to the British Film Institute, this is the only movie he ever wrote. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not surprising uh, <laughs> with this film. But um, also, it's the only movie that Film Plays Limited production ever made. Yeah, I was seeing that too. And I don't know if that speaks to how the movie was re- received when it came out. Uh-huh. It is hard to find a lot of reviews on this film. Uh, I had no idea. I, I didn't even know what it was when we were talking about it a couple of years ago. It, the movie destroyed them both. I mean, it's... Yeah, uh, I don't know. Together. But the film, yeah, it's been notoriously obscure. You know, if you look at the Wikipedia entry there, you know, you see how even on home video and television, mm-hmm. it was it was rare to see, which is really... Perhaps tragedy is too strong a word, but it is something of a loss. Like I say, this film created a genre. And uh, it wasn't until the next year that Universal was the thing that wouldn't die or something. The Conquistador hit in a box movie. You know what I'm talking about? Right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, that's the next year. Then there's a German film right after it called The Head. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's favorite, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, <laughs> is sure. like the early 60s. Oh, yeah. And so it seems like, you know, Tim pointed out that uh, there's one of the inner sanctum mysteries where Lon Chaney Jr. walks around with a head in a bag, you know, for the whole thing. But it's not the same thing. And, you know, I mentioned Peter Laurie and Mad Love fakes being a guy whose head was cut off, I believe, and has it put back on with a brace and walk. But that's all just a, you know, a sham. Great visual, though, you know. In 54, we had the Mad Magician, which it's not technically like a living head, but uh, the the head is kind of a plot element. Huh. Uh, The Vincent Price film, uh, there's a head in a bag that the police accidentally pick up or whatever. But it's not alive, right? No, 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 not at all undead or whatever no <laughs> uh-huh but yeah i i can't think of anything pre yeah Man just, without a body that it just has makes that. me wonder if was there a censorship thing did people think that was too ghastly because it's a pretty easy monster to do you know and then the man without a body you know a, a drive-in independent film and so maybe they were free from i don't know but of course british censors are notorious you know for x certificate you know and those Which things this movie got yeah <laughs> and, uh, but yeah i don't know maybe i guess i don't know standards had loosened up maybe <laughs> that you could show depict a severed head yeah but william grote is an unsung hero of horror films and a, and a whole trope that we take for granted nobody knows who this guy is and i've tried to find more information about the guy and he may have been an author. Ah. Um, th- there is uh, a William Grote that turns up on some uh, book websites like Goodreads and Amazon has a listing for him as well. So he may have been an author, but again, I don't know. Well, it gets more fascinating yeah. to hear about it. Yeah. 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 Like, what is the story of William Grote? Yeah. Grote, you know, what inspired him? You know, hunger <laughs> to, to write this, or uh, Bill Warren uh, in um, you know Keep Watching the Sky speculated 
that you know there had been some NGM short films on Nostradamus and they'll start like 1938. Okay. That you know when you had back in the days when going to the movies was an event with a cartoon and a newsreel yeah. short subject and there was a series about that. There had been some time between that and this movie, but you know that makes you kind of wonder if that was part of it, if he's right. And then I wonder again, you know, if some of the Kurt Siodmik movies from Universal and Donovan's Brain and but especially like in House of Frankenstein where again we have the same non-logic about brains <laughs> you know it's just I've never yeah the house I'm going to put your brain the wolfman's brain in your body right and I'm sure. going to get you back it's like but then he's no longer him you know you, you may have done Larry Talbot a, a disservice but, uh, right. but the dude you're wanting to get revenge he went out with his brain yeah, so, you know, Siodmik, I don't know if he ever made a brain story he didn't like, you know, or, or couldn't do some kind of bizarre, it's like, <laughs> how does that work? And boy, does, does like I say, does Groat up the ante on the absurdity of brain transference and oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the absurdity, excuse me. I wish I could come up with this concept, you know? I mean... <laughs> It's so it, it crazy. Really is, it's a beautiful mess. The audacity of the storytelling here. <laughs> so you got a guy who doesn't want to die. Okay, that's, we, we see this in other stories and films as well. You know, he wants, he's going to go to extremes to try not to let death take him. I get that. How we go from we're checking in with this young, handsome-looking English doctor to we're going to go to the Wax Museum in France. Hey, there's an image of Nostradamus. <sighs> After we saw an image of Hitler, I don't know why we had to see that, but okay. There's an image of Nostradamus. I have an idea. I'm going to go hire some drunk doctor to grave rob Nostradamus's crypt because it's very important. You can't dig a body out of the ground and expect to resurrect that head. It has to be a head that was kept in a crypt because underground, you know, it just rots or whatever. But Nostradamus's body in a crypt above ground, it's fine. Then let's not rush over that wax museum sequence because that... We we spend some time there, probably along with the stock market footage, uh, for, <laughs> to pad out you know the sumptuous eighty minutes of this movie. But that intrigued me. But the first time I'd forgotten it, you know, when I looked at it before and came back and, and watched it again, and I'm now seeing this movie maybe more times than any human being should have to. I say, but I do. I, I am a fan, though. I mean, I am. A oh, fan I loved of, it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I loved this film. Yeah, but we get our wax museum tour, and uh, Madame Tussaud, man, Tussaud's museum there. That they, I mean, they go on location. Actually, it's in London, although yeah. she's from France. You know, so there's a connection. And I started mm-hmm. looking up her story. You know, I've heard about that. And, man, I don't know why nobody's ever done a movie about that. You know, she was around the time of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And they brought her in to teach the royal family how to make votive candles or wax flowers or something. And she became the pupil of this guy who was a wax sculpture and did that the sculpture that you see in the movie that's breathing, the Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty. Yeah. Yeah, that's Madame DuBarry. That's the oldest cast in a wax of a person, you know, made of a person. And, of course, she had her head chopped off uh, as the mistress of the king. I kind of feel like a lot of people had their head chopped off. <laughs> but you know who didn't? Madame Tussaud, right? Well, that's Tussaud, true. Okay. Right? Yeah. But she was going to. They had shaved her head and everything to lop it off because she was seen as a royal sympathizer, even though her master there, her master, the guy who taught her sculpture, because she uh-huh. started yeah, he was one of the guys storming the Bastille, but she got pegged 
and they had her head shaved. And then they was like, no, you know, basically you can do community service by <laughs> sculpting death mask of severed heads. So in the movie, when you see Marie Antoinette's face mm-hmm. in it, that's Madame Tussauds. Um, I bet you on wax pressing that over me, Marie Antoinette's severed head. <laughs> Yick. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's nasty. And then see the guy died and left his wax images to her. And she showed up in England, you know, with her kids and some wax statues. And the, the rest is history. Actually, back when I was 10 years old, uh-huh. we went to Florida and there was a Madame Tussauds. And there was the Chamber of Horror section there. Ah, oh, there you go. And so, yeah, and as a kid, you know, 10-year-old kid, my, I had to go see it. And I remember they had a recreation of the French, you know, guillotines with, like, heads piled up in baskets and things. And, uh, oh, get this. This this shows you that taste is truly timeless. They had a wax effigy of the guy who kidnapped the Lindbergh baby in oh, the wow. electric chair with a light flashing off and on in his face. Oh, man. <laughs> And, but here's the monster kid tie in. We got down there. There were like life size sculptures of the universal Frankenstein monster. Oh, there and you I go. think the Wolfman. And there was a photograph of a young couple who had gotten married down there in front of the universal monsters. And the two soda had like a black and had like the newspaper story. And there they are getting married. And there's the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman behind them. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah. But yeah, the whole wax museum thing, this is, that's really a fascinating subject. And of course I know horror has delved in. Have you ever seen wax works? I'm talking about the silent one. Isn't there one with Veet or something? Uh, Maybe. My silent film knowledge is pretty lacking. But uh, of course, Mr. The Wax Museum, you know, and all those things. And see, Madame Tussaud actually did Voltaire when he was living, you know, a sculpture of him. And, uh, you know, that's in Lionel Atwell's museum. Voltaire is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's gross. I mean, if you look at it and, like, they would have wax effigies for medical students and you opened them up and the guts are in there, the wax guts and stuff. Oh, it's nasty. I mean, because they look real. Sure. There's a whole cold around this. But but anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's I, I, like I said, that fascinated me. That statue breathed for a long, long time that you see in the movie of the Sleeping Beauty. That's, that's cool. Uh, they said, yeah, but uh, but yeah, Hitler's there. Uh, Henry VIII, his few wives, and uh, and uh, Nostradamus, you know, um, <laughs> and and yeah, I, and again, it is bizarre. I mean, why does he go to a wax museum to look for, you know, <laughs> my successor? Yeah, you know, that I, I pretty, yeah. I don't understand the logic there, but okay. well, you know what? I'll tell you this: it's visual. Okay, yeah, you know it's true. nice. It's instead of flipping through book pages, and, and it kept my interest. Sure, <laughs> I've been talking for fifteen minutes about that. Got sidetracked mm-hmm. with the movie, so good choice. Uh, <laughs> you know, Charles Saunders or Billy Wilder's less talented brother who made it. You know, great, great, great call there, yep. and a good way to pad it out. And boy, that's an enthused youngster, isn't it, at the head of the line in that scene. <laughs> He is. He's eating. It'd be like me, you know, when I was there. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a minute. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, he gets the body of, uh, or or gets the the head of Nostradamus, brings it back to the lab, and let's let's, uh, do some science and... I I don't understand. <laughs> no, don't don't think too hard. And what and what about that laboratory, man? Okay, I so mean, I was gonna, yeah, the eyeball. That, 
that look, yeah, it's like King Kong's eyeball up there on the wall rolling around. And, and it looks like, you know, I think our, uh, we didn't mention that, uh, Broussard, the Kolaris character is suffering from hallucinations, right? Right. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's, he's hearing telephones ring, which is kind of an odd one. And, uh, he's, um, I don't think, you know, a man who's suffering from hallucinations, that that's the best environment for him to be in. It looks like Salvador Dali, David Lynch, and the production designer for Pee Wee's Playhouse, you know, designed the decor of giant organs growing (laughs) out there. You know, it is so bizarre. But, you know, the only thing he ever questions in the movie, knowing Uh that he has hallucination, is, is that monkey's head alive? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess because it's important to him. The, but the he, eyeball? He, yeah. Nope. Well, no, no big the, deal. Like he said, yeah. he does a take on the eyeball, right? Mm-hmm. But the only thing that he's interested in is that monkey's head. And uh, I guess he's foreseen the possibilities. But, but did you notice how they, they all talk to him about his, his brain tumor? They, uh, the doctor who comes in, mm-hmm. you know, to give him the bad news. Um, he acts like he's offended that he has to tell his patient that he's terminally ill. You're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> did you did you get that? Yeah, from him there. He's like, he's like yeah. You know, he says it's it's hard for me to say. <laughs> and it's like, are you breaking up with him? What's the deal with this? And then he's, he's like, if you must know, you have an inoperable brain tumor. Yeah. It's like, if you must know, this is your doctor. Yeah. <laughs> talking, you know, and then he and the young guy, the young guy that, um, you know, the, 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 the mustache you admire, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, he gets on to about, you were supposed to get more rest, weren't you? <laughs> it's like, are you blaming him for having a brain tumor? Because he didn't get, re- <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, even the regular doctors, forget the mad ones. You know, Mm -hmm. don't seem to have any notion of what's going on here, you know, in terms of, 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 of medicine and and bedside manner and cause and effect. (laughs) It's like, it's a wacky world over there in England. It's it's something. Apparently in the (laughs) medical profession there. Yeah. You know, I know we're laughing, we're giggling through all of this, but you know what? I love this movie. Oh, me too. This movie is just, you know, and I I actually purposely did not watch it until I knew we were going to get together and actually do it. So I watched it this morning and, uh, man, it was awesome. <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, you know, I mean, I, the, the world would be diminished a little less. Uh, I mean, a little more. <laughs> Maybe that, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the world would be a little less um, happy place uh, without the man without a body because it will truly make you laugh, you know, make you make you smile. And you can't make a movie like this by trying to make a bad movie. You know? No, not you, at all. You, uh, and the way these actors deliver these lines, I don't think Lord Olivier could pull some of this off. You know, they're so sincere and the way they're dressed. And, you know, and, and last year's Monster Bash, mm-hmm. uh, when Joyce, was it Joyce Metis, who's in the brain from Planet Aros, who was there? Yeah. 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 And, you know, I saw 
like pictures and she'd done like Tennessee Williams, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. And I asked her and I said, well, how does being in a movie like The Brain from Planet Iros differ from doing, you know, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or The Glass Menagerie? And her response was so very interesting. She was like, basically, you just get into it, you know, no matter what the role, you know, I guess if you're a dedicated actor, you know, you don't look down your nose at it. And you just give it, you know, your best, your all. You, you know, you, you don't have contempt for it. You know, you just, mm. you know, just it, it doesn't matter if it's the blame for Penitentiary or, or Tennessee Williams. You do it with the same, you know, earnestness. I mean, I guess you're going to rise to the subject matter. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, but it's very interesting uh, to hear her say that. You know, it wasn't like this is beneath me or anything like that. And, of course, I did read comments where our leading man was talking about how they were breaking up laughing on the set. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, I, I don't, I mean. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just that the guy, when Clark starts arguing, Mr. Thomas's head. And then it's so surreal because the rest of the scientists there, Dr. Phil and mm-hmm. his would-be girlfriend and studly assistant who's having an affair with uh, uh, Broussard's freedom-fighting mistress. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that would make a better movie, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I, I have to say it does inspire me because I, I've come to my alternate version, Derek. Of the oh, man with the body. Okay. Yeah, I'd be glad to share with you when, when we're done and let the listener decide, you know, if, if history decided which the right one got made. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, they're all hanging outside. They close the door to give Broussard and Nostradamus's head privacy. And there's a whole thing where Broussard has decided, I'm going to imprint my personality on you. You know, you're going to become me. Uh, I'm going to. And so they're standing around smoking cigarettes. There's a lot of smoking of cigarettes in this. Yeah. But they're standing. It's like a water cooler break, you know? And it's like, yeah, he's a classic egomaniac. Who do you think is going to win out in that battle? You know, well, you know, Nostradamus is an unknown quantity. (laughs) He says, but it's not unlike a hypno suggestion of a seance. You know, some people are more susceptible. <laughs> and they're standing around smoking cigarettes while this guy in the next room is, you're Carl Broussard. No, I'm Nostradamus. No, you're Carl Broussard. He's talking to a head. It's, just and, yelling and, at him. And it's like, yeah. it's just another day at the office. You know, <laughs> are those two at it again? You know, it's like <laughs> Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, magic realism moment where the most absurd, crazy thing is just, yeah, whatever. Is he arguing with Nostradamus's head again? They're like an old married couple, those two. I just, you know, it's just amazing, you know, the things that they, uh, the, the, the way they deliver this stuff. And it's this with such sincerity. And of course, I don't know how many takes it took. Oh, uh, man, I can't imagine. Yeah, because I, you know, I did, like yourself, I used to, you know, have aspirations to be a filmmaker and comic book writer, uh, as we were talking about before. And I missed around with some movie making or filmmaking. And, mm-hmm. and boy, I learned, you know, that not only movies made in the editing room, they're saved in the editing room because you see actors who can't get your dialogue out of their mouth. Right. And, but then they get that one take, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one anybody sees. <laughs> right, so exactly. It's exactly. perfect, right? Yeah. But our leading man, now this, this was interesting here. His name is, um, oh, what is his name? Last name's Hutton, isn't it? Robert uh, Hutton. 
Yeah, he did uh, a few genre films. I guess maybe The Colossus of New York might be his best known. But this is very interesting to me, Derek, because I was watching this, and I I began actually to crush a bit on his his girlfriend in this movie, which, you know, at first she just struck Jean is is the the name of the the character. Mm -hmm. And at first, you know, she's just kind of, I mean, you know, the part's not well written. And I know she did some other things, too. She did TV and maybe some of the spy genre stuff at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, she did other things. But this is not the best you know, kind of film. No. Uh, and, you know, as, as this kind of horror heroine goes, she's a little, you know, bland or whatever. But I don't know. She, she started growing on me. And it struck me that their, you know, their whole thing is like, I'm in love with you, doctor. You know, why are you dedicated to your work and you won't notice me? Mm-hmm. You know, she says things like, you know, she's really pushing for a compliment. You know, well, I'm not exactly unattractive. And his response is, I think beautiful is the word you're looking for. And, you know, I do have to say there is quite a gap in the scale between not unattractive and beautiful. <laughs> Not exactly. I myself tend toward the not exactly unattractive in things, but there's kind of a, you know, a gap there and uh, between the two. And she's just pushing for that. And she has that line where she says, uh, you show more passion for a medulla oblongata. <laughs> well, I think, well, Gene, you know how to get your man now. Show him your medulla oblongata. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> get, get an x-ray. Get a tattoo, Gene. Uh you know, he'll come around, Phil will come around with that. But their relationship, start thinking about Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Really? And, yeah. And I, because of that whole, you know, kind of tension there between them. I mean, it's, you know, it's different. Mm-hmm. But it got me thinking that. I got to think, well, man, what if this was Grace Kelly in this part? And Jimmy Stewart. And oh, the man boy. with the brain. And then I found out that Hutton was considered a, this was after my theory okay i'm, I'm doing okay. a Nostradamus here i'm i'm picking up on the psychic vibes and i found out that hutton was considered to resemble jimmy stewart so much that when stewart went into service in world war ii hutton was getting parts that stewart would have gotten wow yeah and i just you know i think if this movie had jimmy stewart and grace kelly in it it would be better remembered i'm just gonna say totally yeah no that i yeah the ending of the movie shocked me. Um, I'm sitting here watching the movie. I'm having a good time. It's goofy. Nostradamus' head gets put on somebody else's body. It starts walking around. Okay, that's kind of cool. I know the press kit makes a big deal about the, the attack dog scene, which really is kind of Pathetic, isn't it? Yeah. But the very end, and big spoiler here, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you how the movie ends, how Nostradamus' head ends up. He's going to go hang himself. Yeah. He goes on the top of the bell tower. He makes a noose. He he puts the noose on. And then we see the body fall. And I assumed it was just the body jumping. Nope. <laughs> when the body, when he jumped, Nostradamus' head came off. <laughs> and it's still in the noose. And the body is on the ground. Yeah, that, that, that is was kind amazing. Of and then we have the head. Remember, we have that artsy shot looking down from the head swinging at yes. people below. And, and what about that head, man? It looks like it's in a – well, when he becomes what I like to refer to as Nostrastein. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know it's, it's actually it's kind of brilliant because yeah. Nostradamus and the man whose body his head ended up on, 
who they're secretly hoping that their buddy who got shot by Brassad for having an affair with his freedom fighting glamorous girlfriend, you know, that his per- <laughs> you can tell they're hoping his personality is going to take over. Nostradamus is, hey, if you listen, mm-hmm. it's like, did I do the right thing? And the guy says, who's like the, with the, a medical association where you pres- you're doing your, keeping your Hippocratic oath, you know, <laughs> to preserve life. And they're hoping that their buddy is going to take over the body. But then he goes completely bonkers, right? Yeah. The monster, he's, he's rawr, you know, and it goes after Jean at that point. And, you know, she's trying, I guess, to calm him down. And, you know, you would think that, you know, it's typical, right? In these 50s movies, the monster is going to be chasing a girl around the laboratory, around a spaceship, you know, or whatever. Right. They know a pretty woman. And so here we've got a monster. First woman he's seen in 400 years. He's just got his body back. He's French. You think you tried something, right? And she just screams and passes out, and he goes on his merry way. You so, know? to be fair, how French is he? Because not once does Nostradamus <laughs> say anything in French. Well, actually, I, I beg to differ. He says his name in French. Well, Michel, okay, that's true. That's Michel true. De Dom, but... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, Michel de Monstradame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that was amazing. And boy, I love that conversation with Dr. Phil and the, the head of police mm-hmm. when he's saying like, uh, yes, I, I kept him alive intravenously. I'm glad you approve. You know, it's like, the man's a cop. You're a doctor. You get like peer approval from him. And then they suddenly these two guys have this mutual admiration society going because then – the police inspector, whatever the head of the bureau has the best line ever. I had to write it down. You know, it's remarkable. It's alive. That head mounted on your assistant's body. That was quick thinking on your part, doctor. I must say <laughs> it's like, and these are the authorities, right? So it's like, and, and the, yeah. and the, and the medical profession and the cops are all like insane. <laughs> it's like, they just take absurd. I don't know. Maybe it was the war and the rise of existentialism. You know, but, but life is just totally absurd. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm getting a doctoral yeah. thesis out of this movie now. So. <laughs> the, yeah, it is. It is incredible. An incredible little film that is just, you know, unjustly mm-hmm. obscure. It inspired me. I, I could go places with this film. Oh, yeah. yeah the, and the woman eater. Uh, you just kind of almost get the impression that it's almost gearing up for something. You know, mm-hmm. that could be big, but you know they don't have the budget to follow through with it. And so it just, hey, that's a great concept, and movie's over. Yeah, I saw it on YouTube. Yeah, it's terrible print, but I'm glad that we could see it, because I'd really like to see how it looked compared to The Woman Eater. Right. Oh, and because that's a nice DVD for whatever reason. You know, I, I think to give a fair comparison, you know, you need to see The Man Without a Body in its original theatrical 35 millimeter blender. <laughs> you know, get Martin Scorsese on this quick. monkey's head. Is it alive? 
Oh, yes, of course. All you would need for me would be a brain, a human brain. Well, it's hardly that simple. Buy one, steal one. I'll do anything. When the brain is healthy, it will never die. For even severed from its body, it continues to live, to scheme, to plot. Look! What just happened? For Carl Broussard, this means fantastic power. Now, once again, he can rule everyone and everybody, make them slaves to his venomous will. For inhuman strength, incredible might, unnatural powers, the man without a body will make your blood run cold. For it is without a doubt, without an equal, in thrills, excitement, and unbearable suspense. All right, so we were talking about the movie, and you were about to give me a, an alternate take on everything here. I can't wait to hear this, man. <laughs> okay. Well, there, there, are, there are two versions. One I haven't thought as deeply about. It's The first is the version of, um, oh, who was the guy who made Cabin Fever and uh, Eli... Oh, Eli Roth. Okay. Yeah, okay. This is the Eli Roth version. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, I'll be short. Yeah, basically, it, it works. The The head transplant with Nostradamus works uh-huh. in Lou's personality, uh, the adorable philandering Lou, <laughs> <laughs> the okay. adorable adulterer. Yeah, he, he what? Can you philander if you're not married? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, the adorable adulterer, Lou, his personality reasserts himself. Yes, he does look like Nostradamus, but he's back. Okay. And our, our Dr. Phil does, you know, follow through with his promise to spread this to the authorities of, of medicine worldwide. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it becomes a thing, you know, get ahead, <laughs> extend your life, right? <laughs> It's an immortality. So I'm seeing this is where the Eli Roth thing comes. I'm seeing like you know a third world country, right? Okay. Where they, they people come in to harvest heads. You know, it's like Carl Broussard says in this when he's, you know, he's not coming forward about who Nostradamus is to to feel. He just says right. he's somebody nobody knows cares about him. Nobody knows, right? Right. So you can see. Uh, I mean, like good grief in India. You know where they have oh, the, the man. practice. Where they cut the hair, mm-hmm. and and people just zoom in and fly it out to L.A. for extensions and stuff. So I'm seeing heads being <laughs> harvested, you know, so that the wealthy and elite uh, out in L.A. you know can have a new head, um, you know, grafted onto their to their to their body. Because you know, I mean, you know, the body might hold up hold up a little better, you know, than the face that. Uh, who needs plastic surgery? Uh, wow. Yeah so, yeah. so, yeah. So heads being lopped off and, and all this stuff, you know, out through the jungle. And yeah, that would be the gross version. Here's the fun version. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. This, this, yeah, this, this is my version here. Yeah. You know, we have the, the subplot of, of our heroine there who is longing for Dr. Phil, Gene. You know, he's, he's a man dedicated to his, to his job. So what I'm thinking is that, you know, Nostradamus sort of been checking Gene out from the table over there. Just oh, ahead, no. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and so when he gets a body, uh-huh. right, he's interested, right? And, you know, he's got Lou, whose personality <laughs> likes the ladies. 
So Gene starts toying with Nostradamus' feelings to make Phil jealous. And they're going out on dates. Nostradamus <laughs> in French is wearing a beret. Wow. And eating long loaves of bread. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're sort of, you know, hitting it off. Well, she's, she's using them to get Phil jealous. But here's the twist, right? Okay. Broussard, right, who is now, I suppose, still dead. You know, he and the Nostrasteins <laughs> storylines, you know, came together there in that almost King Kong moment uh-huh. when they top off his head Boy. dangling uh-huh. yeah, when his body falls. <laughs> but uh, we'd have to wrap him off some other way, right? Sure. But he was trying to implant, or not implant, imprint his own personality on Nostradamus. So the thing is now is that he succeeded, right? Broussard's personality has been lurking in that brain along with Nostradamus's in loose. Oh, <laughs> and, <What? laughs> yeah, and so then he comes to the fore Broussard, right? And think about it. He's gotten the body of the guy who was sleeping with his mistress. So that's a very nice sort of come up. It's, and then, <laughs> he kidnaps Gene, takes his – I think we missed the detail, right, of Broussard strangling the mistress to death with her necklace that he bought her. Yeah, we didn't talk about that earlier. That was – um, yeah. Yeah, that, I tell you, now that to me, talk about the head dropping. What kind of unsettled me is when Lou walks in, he doesn't realize he's talking to her a corpse on the couch. Yeah, it's a hey, good darling. point. Yeah, that was – but – I even have a happy ending because, you know, that she's fought the good fight against communist reds previously to becoming a, <laughs> a, a mistress, you know, uh, and, oh. to be a great grandfather. And so now what he does, he takes her head, right, and kidnaps Jean, takes off Jean's head, puts the mistress's head on. Gene's more naturally good-natured and subservient personality takes over, and he's still got a sexy foreign accent when she talks, when he kisses her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, how long have you been thinking about this? I, I thought about it like maybe this afternoon. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yes, um, when I was supposed to be writing, working on my novel. <laughs> yeah, I said, don't you have a novel to be working on, your man? <laughs> I may work this plot line in, you know, plot line in to my Snow Queen novel. <laughs> hey, you were telling me before we started recording that it's already way too long. Come on, you're now. right. Yes, I. <laughs> I have to save that as a as a special opt in feature for my newsletter. <laughs> But no, I, I, wow. I want to do, yeah, no, I, I, I want to do the, the man without a body remake. I'm saving it for that. I have no idea who has the rights. Yeah. I was gonna say, I don't think this is in the public domain, but, uh, I mean, how hard could it be to, I mean, the story's not, That's right. <laughs> yeah, we can tell our own head. Exa- yeah. I, I think <laughs> I've taken quite a, quite a turn here uh, <laughs> of, of, of my home. So so that, you know, that's my more perhaps upbeat version, at least for Broussard. I mean, he kind of gets a happy ending and and achieves his goal, right? Yeah, but of all the characters in the movie, he's probably the least, I mean, he's the most despicable of all of them. <laughs> yeah, but you Does know, he deserve a happy ending? Well, you know, it, it, it's kind of like real life, Derek. I said, <laughs> we're getting some verisimilitude here. You know, how, how many obnoxious people... <laughs> 
you know, live well while, while the good, you know, dwindle uh, wow. and, 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 um, and, and don't uh, do as well. But, but, you know, he actually, if you listen to what he said, mm-hmm. there was a hint of his having a bad relationship with his dad. You know, he like ran away when he was 11 and started shining shoes and that's a good point. Yeah, and now they all lick mine, you know, well, I do get the, I mean, yeah, that's no excuse for being just a total jerk, but you <laughs> see where he's coming from. And also we do have to think too, we're not exactly seeing this man at his best. Uh, he does have a, <laughs> you know, he's, he's from the moment we see him, right. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like the way Stephen King complained about the, the character of Jack, in the novel, The Shining, how it had translated over to the movie, which is like he said, Jack Nicholson's take is crazy to start with. Right. Right. That's so a good we're point. seeing Carl mm-hmm. Broussard, you know, he's, uh, he's hearing phones ring, which is a bizarre, uh, a very <laughs> delusion. specific, yeah, hallucination. Yeah, delusion there. And, you know, we, we keep getting those weird swirly vision things, you know, like especially with that eyeball where it's rolling around. And, but, you know, he hasn't got a lot of rest. That's been established by two different medical professors, mm-hmm. professionals, excuse me. You know, it's right. Like, yeah, blaming him for having a tumor because he didn't get enough naps. It's like the most crazy thing I ever heard. So, you know, this is this guy, we don't know, you know, I mean, uh, Maybe that sexy former freedom fighter uh, who's now mistress, you may have liked him at one time. You're, you know? you're not going to let that go, are you? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, the press book adds so much more backstory. <laughs> it's like an Alan Dean Foster novelization of a movie. You know, <laughs> the press book, because now we're seeing things happen. It makes, sort of makes her a richer character, I have to say. It would be much more interesting there. Of course, I don't know if she would have taken his abuse that well. That's <laughs> true, that yeah. Gun-packing woman, you know, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> gorilla so fighter. That, yeah, gorilla fighter. That could have made things maybe a bit, maybe she's gotten soft with all the jewelry and things, but that he's <laughs> feeding her there. But yeah, you know, like I say, that uh, that's kind of a, a guy that Maybe, you know, he wouldn't have gotten to the top without being the, the nicest guy. But, I mean, I can't believe I'm making apologies for the villain of the man. No, keep going. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. That's like, like, the, ne- the next podcast will discuss whether Hamlet is truly mad or just pretending. That be, uh, the cycle, you know, we'll continue our probing of the psychological depths of, of fictional characters and how far writers can go with her creation since Samuel Richardson and Pamela in the 18th century. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, I, like I say, he's, he's, he is kind of crazy. And, uh, again, if it were real life, I can't believe I'm qualified. <laughs> like a, a movie where you resurrect the head of Nostradamus, you know, <laughs> which and you, it has no very bearing in logic whatsoever. <laughs> if but if it, in real real life. Life, <laughs> if it were real life, the tumor would change your personality or heighten the negative things. And, you know, so that that's, that's true. Yeah. I, I see it, Derek, I see this as a potential story of redemption. Hmm. Interesting. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's, by the time I'm done, he's going to be standing over there glowing with Darth Vader and Yoda and Obi Wan and a little. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <he's... laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, that's a thing. Um, <laughs> was, that, was that worth coming back for? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Hands down. You know, I said this before. I really like this film. I really do. It is just crazy enough to to be enjoyable it, it hits so many notes on the what 
scale that it's just a blast. You know, I, I know we're laughing and we're kind of criticizing some things here and there, but really there's some neat stuff here. We could even go as far as saying to play off the tumor thing. He's got a tumor. He's hallucinating. Who's right. to say that this isn't an unreliable narrator kind of thing? Well, there you maybe, go. Maybe there's something else going on here that we just have to infer because we're getting information from a guy who's hallucinating because he's got a brain tumor. So, uh, yeah. I, you know, I know that's a stretch. This is a, a fertile acre of, of creativity, this little, it's something. this little... No wonder somebody is jealously guarding the rights and... You know, the whole, oh, I'm sure that's whole, why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The only way you can see it, it's a washed out copy on YouTube because <laughs> they don't want this stuff getting out, man. You know, this this is the after the superhero wave is gone. You know, this is the <laughs> the next phase. The severed head shared universe of films is that what we're looking the, for? The, exactly the the man without a body, right? Shared universe. Well, let's let's just make it the uh, the George Saunders universe, or it was Charles Saunders unit, and we go with the woman eater, right, and uh, <laughs> and mix this one together. Corliss and the Explorer are twin brothers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They took a separate path in life, a path in life, and yeah, and then we branch out to Hitler's brain, and uh, and hey, we saw Hitler in the Wax Museum, so. There you go. Yeah, that. There you go. That's that's the. Yeah, that's his next. Uh, his next target, and he's a lot, a lot more recent vintage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then we just slide a lot over with the thing with two heads, and you know, and just keep going. I yeah. don't. I don't think Hitler's he- uh, body was kept in a crypt. I think we might be in trouble there. It might not work. <laughs> but they saved his brain, which in movie talk means they saved his whole head. That's that's true. <laughs> in B, yeah, that's... B movie talk. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> I don't know how much of it I'm going to leave in the show in the cut, but listeners, Micah and I started recording and then about two hours ago we had to stop and we are now just picking up. So we've spent like a good chunk of afternoon on this film. <laughs> and I don't regret it one bit, man. I they really don't. This movie, it's just crazy fun. I went through it twice prepping for this, taking notes, organizing, and doing internet research. There you and go. I like sweeping out the the corners of cinema, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you know, as much as we love them, and it's always, you know, possible to have a fresh take, right? But sure. so much has been around Son of Frankenstein, you know, the universal movies, the, the Hammer Horror stuff, you know? And I love it, and I'm always open, you know, for something like, to hear a new take on that or mm-hmm. you know a new book on terrence fisher is going to get my interest oh, or yeah, of course but but the corners <laughs> these little areas that are neglected there's some interesting spare change that's drifted out over there you know uh that might be a nice buffalo nickel uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> over there oh. that you know, and and to me that's that's very exciting because there's just there's just so much more yet to be found. And when I started looking at this movie, I had no idea that I would end up actually having a little side course in something like well, it is film history, it is horror film history. I don't know, maybe this is just general knowledge to the public, and I've been living in a cave or something. But to me, this was a revelation. Here is where the Living Head movies begin and at least that's you know that's my theory sure uh and of course if any listeners out there you know know something different you know 
<laughs> please call in or whatever. Yeah, and seriously. Like, it, uh, yeah, I want to know more. This is an area that I don't know a heck of a lot about. But if, but if not, my friend, we've done a, a service to the genre. Is that what we did here? I think that's what we're going to call it. <laughs> you, 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 mystically, you know? but, all right, uh, all right. Yeah, why not? This is this is yeah, cinematic excavation while people listen. It's amazing, you know, it, isn't it? We're having a fun time, just kind of you know talking, and, and we know this movie isn't like high art. We get that. That said, you touched on something that uh, is pretty important to me, and that's that. When we do talk about some of these movies on the show, whether it's with the Rally Awards, which I just talked about last week, there's just something about finding some of these movies for the first time, uh, whether it's a, an old obscure film or, or something that you just haven't gotten around to watching yet. It's just one of the things that I enjoy doing on the show, you know, just shining light. So to have it's an opportunity. Joy. Yeah, to, to have an and now opportunity. And now you've got yeah. something new to enjoy. Exactly. Right? exactly. You've got even more to enjoy. You yep. know, yeah, yeah, so. and this stuff is wonderful to me. To me, it's fantastic that these kind of films can exist; that they do exist. This one—it's just so nuts. I want to know so much more about the production of it, but I, yeah. I have a feeling that we're not going to ever find anything. Well, I don't know. You found that press book. Well, can something in this age completely disappear? I mean, this was all way before the internet, and people were scanning and so on, but. Someone may have inadvertently scanned an obituary in Variety for this guy, right? Mm. When they're like two inches, but it gives, like you said, you thought he might be a novelist, yeah. right? And then you you got something, right? You got a little toehold. That's the exciting stuff. You know, I've, I've written a, we've talked about it, it hasn't been a while there. I do have a publisher looking at it now. Uh, it's with a, my novel on a Slitzy. Oh, yeah? That's right, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, hopefully that will work out after all these years. But, you know, we started, you know, I was working with some other guys, the late Vern Langdon. Mm-hmm. And then this this guy named Tom, who was a great researcher for genealogy and things. Yeah. You know, there was stuff on Slitzy. This guy found out, you know, going back to pre-World War One, And all these connections started appearing as, you, as we begin to look at documents and see names of people who had been connected with him and it was very exciting you know to start putting these pieces together and know that you were on the trail of carnies <laughs> and sideshow people who had no idea 70 huh. years later somebody would be tracing their path right right you know and that's exciting you know as opposed just a thrill to doing that and breaking that ground you know, as opposed to just looking up most of, although I love doing it, you know, the books that are written uh, on genre films and things and the research people have done. But when you're doing that for yourself and discovering something new, it's, it's an exciting, exciting experience if you're uh, interested in film. Sometimes, like I say, you got to look in those little corners of, uh, of film history. There's some shiny coins there. You might have to blow on them and polish them up a bit, but there's something special. You won't get any argument from me on that one because it, this one, it, it's a blast. I know I'm going to revisit it. I know I'm going to recommend it to people. Like I said, it's just crazy. Everything that happens in this film is just nuts. <laughs> uh, I was not kidding when I said earlier, it, by saying it felt like it was a you know, film noir blunder. I mean, it really is just <laughs> all over the map. And it does have some film noir moments and elements to it. So you have that going on as well. And it's just, yeah, you're right. It's crazy. It's really got a femme fatale. 
You got the Femme Fatale. You got all that stuff at the end when they're running around in the streets of London with the shadows and everything. I mean, it looks oh, yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, you're right. It looks gorgeous. So, and, and it looks gorgeous through a really crummy print. So, <laughs> if we could just yeah, see it, find me a good transfer, man. Oh wow, I, I don't know where to go from here. So, I'm I'm just going to mention your website again. Okay, please. <laughs> minorprofitpress.com and you can sign up for a newsletter over there uh, how often do you put out the email newsletter like once a month that's probably for right now what i'm going to be shooting for i was doing it more often and mm-hmm. uh i've got to kind to um you know to to readjust a bit because right now i'm focused again on the novel okay you know when i'm not pondering the man to the body um, i'm working on that so that's take because i put a lot in my newsletters man mm-hmm. you know sure i appreciate everything you do for the show man and uh, i appreciate you being part of the show uh and uh thank you you know bringing, bringing movies like this to my attention man just makes me happy i'm glad these movies are amazing <laughs> yes they are Get out of there first. Blast them now. Drop now. You've got to do it. Dad, listen to me. From the remotest reaches of the cosmos, an unknown force is overpowering mankind. I can't get enough buildup. We'll never get off the ground. Countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. One, fire. The greatest threat in outer space, the war of the planets. You can't stop them. Lazar's no good. You can't stop them. They're lights, but they've got shape. They're more than lights. When you have them within, you experience a power of mind beyond all comprehension. Working feverishly, courageous astronauts vainly search for a transparent enemy that has overtaken their space station, paralyzing every form of life and motion. And prepare for immediate evacuation of all space installations. All the forces on Earth have been mobilized to combat this invisible, supernatural, deadly power that is crippling man's progress in space. No signs of rigor mortis, no signs of decay or corruption. Man's willpower, his will to live, is being crushed. It's a battle of wits against a subtle enemy for which there is no defense. fascinated, awed, gripped, mesmerized, enslaved by the will of the deadly diaphanoids. What is it you want? Friendship. I know how to deal with them. General, I'm going to call radiation control. Wait, Mike. It's a desperate fight. But a handful of fearless spacemen search for every sign, for every face that might hide the seed, the spawn of death that threatens to destroy the Earth. We don't know whether we should treat them as living or dead, whether to do biopsy or autopsy. The apparatus is not required. 
I don't think that's for you to decide. I will do the thinking, Commander. It's a power of gigantic proportion. It corrodes the very will of mankind. This is a film you cannot miss. Man, pitched against the unknown, the incredible, the war of the planets. The war of the planets. Our planet may be doomed, our Earth devastated, the monsters are in revolt, and civilization is in chaos. Godzilla is laying waste to New York, Rodan is attacking Moscow, Manda is smashing London, and Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. Our battle cry must be, destroy all monsters. Monster, monster. Who can say which country or city will be next? We must unite and destroy all monsters. Is there a way to defend against Godzilla, Rodan, Manda, and Mothra? The answer is no. Let our battle cry be, destroy all monsters. Be prepared. See for yourself in color from American International. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 This picture is rated G for general audiences. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 Hey everybody, this is Heidi Bennett of Vibrant Visionaries Podcast and Spinal Tap Minute Podcast. And this is a quick little promo for an upcoming event and it's Movies by Minutes Portland. We're going to be meeting up in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, August 24th for live podcasting games. On the stage, we've got the Movies by Minutes guys from Star Wars Minute. Actually, it's going to be a mashup of Star Wars Minute and the Godfather Minute. The newly pod game, Rick from Mad Max Minute is going to be hosting that. Vibrant Visionaries, where I'm going to have the fellas from Open the Podcast Doors, Hal, <laughs> which I think you could probably figure out which podcast that is. And then just added the cast and the furious. So lots of live podcasting and some games going on. Tickets are $20. It's a family friendly event. It's really a social event. It's not just for the movies by minutes listener, but the podcast listener and fan alike. Go to moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland. That's moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland to buy tickets. Again, tickets are 20 bucks. See you in Portland. All right, so that brings us to the end of the show. And okay, I get it. And I know that Dr. Tongue, I know that Mark and Kenny didn't do this on purpose, but you both brought up Invasion of the Saucer Men. I know I haven't talked about it here on the show yet. I want to. So you know what? Let's make it happen. Sometime this year, I commit to talking about Invasion of the Saucerman. You know, it's something I've been meaning to talk about anyway. I love the music. I love the monster design. I love the film. So that'll happen. Thanks to Mark and Jerry and Kenny for contributing to this week's episode of the show. The show is only made better with the additions of these segments. And that's just not me saying that, gentlemen. I've had people tell me in person as well as through Twitter or Facebook or, or emails that they just really enjoy all of the segments. So thank you for helping to make the Monster Kid Radio podcast that much better with your contributions. 
I mentioned it at the top of the show. I'm going to mention it again. Our contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com is our email address and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And I want you to remember that voicemail line because remember when I was talking with Micah about a contest? I've got three copies of the book that we were giving away at Monster Bash. This includes a short story, well, by me, one of the short stories from my Supernatural Solutions Monster Hunter for Hire book. And we've got some of Micah's work in there as well. It's professionally published. The artwork on the cover is great. And I want to give it to you, but you got to enter a contest to win. Here's how you can enter the contest to win. Man Without a Body was all about, well, a man without a body. And, well, a head without a man. Anyway, it's about Nostradamus's head and this plan or this scheme to put the head on top of, well, a headless body. What I'd like to know, I want you to create your own headless body monster by putting the head of somebody from history on it. And then, well, come up with a clever little name. Like, you know how Micah was calling it Nostris, Nostrastines, Nostradamus. He was combining Nostradamus and Frankenstein. I can't remember. I have to go back and re-listen. But call in. Within the next two weeks, we'll say the deadline is August 21st, and then on August 22nd, I will play all the voicemails, we'll let the listeners vote. The top three vote-getters will win a copy of the book, and I'll mail it to you. So again, call 503-479-5657, tell us what head from history you would put on top of a body to make your own monster. Bonus points if you tell me the name of your movie or a little bit of the plot or whatever, but... Not necessary. It's just fun. Anyway, you've got till the 21st to do that. I'll make sure our contact information, as always, is available on our website over at monsterkidradio.net. We can also find links to Professor Frenzy's podcast and Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles and everything that he talks about there, as well as links for you to pick up the books that are talked about here on the show and that Criterion set of Godzilla films. If you are going to buy that Godzilla set, please consider using the link that we have in the show notes, because if you do that, I get a little bit of kickback and that helps support the show because of course we are an amazon affiliate also on the website i'm going to embed a youtube video a youtube video that i released earlier this week that announced what was coming this month on monster kid radio and i'm just going to make you go over there to find out so you want to know what's coming up next week the week after that or the week after that head over to the website and play the youtube video or just check out the monster kid radio on youtube youtube channel over at youtube.com slash monster kid radio and play the video from there once again, big thanks to the band Surf Man Chew for letting us play their music here on the show this week. The song was Drywall. It's from their album The Beast from the East. And like I said earlier, you can pick it up from their Bandcamp page over at surfmanchew.bandcamp.com. And yeah, it's spelled exactly like you think it would be spelled. But there will be a link in the show notes as well. It's a great album. Lots of fun music. I actually had a hard time figuring out which song I was going to play this week on the show. I think I did okay by picking Drywall, but... You should go check out their other songs and let me know. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Drywall. See what I just said about 30 seconds ago. And that's it. I'm done. My name is Sarah Kemp Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.